0: Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Hankey. Transitioning from conventional tillage to no-till has a lot of benefits, including rebuilding soil organic matter, better water absorption, and a healthier environment for soil microorganisms. But this doesn't happen overnight. Joining me on this podcast is Jim Horman, he's a former soil health specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and now serves as a private soil health consultant in Ohio. Jim, getting your soil rejuvenated with no-till is a three to five year transition, so where do you even start?
1: It really depends on your starting point. So if you've been doing no-till for a couple years, but uh, maybe not using the cover crops, Probably the first big step is to improve that soil compaction. You got to get that your soil structure back. And so probably the first step is just getting a multi-species cover crop out there. really works well after wheat because you have a long growing season and get a lot of roots. And so you got to get the soil compaction, get that soil functioning, get the microbes revved up. And uh, that's real important by having those live roots out there. And then you'll start to get your nitrogen dynamics to work out. So, you know, if you really want to do it in the shortest amount of time, put multi-species cover crops out and then... Uh, in most cases, add some manure because uh, you got to get a little extra nitrogen back into that system. So uh, those are kind of the first steps to getting started.
0: How do you know when it's starting to work? What do you look for?
1: Well, probably the first thing is is when you look at the benefits of the transition, you're going to see that the water's starting to infiltrate. That's going to help you with your nitrogen. You'll see that you'll have better water holding capacity. Everything will plant better. You'll start to see earthworms. That's a really good sign that your soil health has improved. When you start seeing the bugs out there, the insects and things like that, uh, you'll know that you're improving, but uh, that can take a little while. Uh, it just depends on how long and, and how poor your soil is. In most cases, we're really promoting, guys are starting to cut back a little on, uh, on a lot of their pesticides, the fungicides, the insecticides, uh, and things like that to really improve your soil health.
0: What are some things you should be monitoring in the meantime? Should you do some testing before you even start just to see where you are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You want to take some soil tests, and I like to take some soil health tests. I I really like the uh, Haney test uh, out of, you know, like Ward Lab. You might want to even do a couple of the uh, microbial tests, the PFL test and uh, a few of those things that'll give you a kind of a guide to where you're starting. You know, you don't have to do those every year, but you know, every two, three years, just like you would a normal soil test, you can look at that and you'll be able to see the transition by the changes in those tests. And those tests will help to tell you what you need to do to make that system better. We want to get the microbes in balance. We've got too much bacteria and we want to get more fungus in our soil. And so when you have compacted soils, your microbial levels are going to dominate and so you want to get the fungus back in there and you got to have live crops to get the fungus back so that just takes a little while to do that.
0: In the years that you're working on getting the soil back in shape are there any cash crops that you can put out there?
1: Probably the best thing to do is start with wheat if at all possible because that will just uh, really jump start it. Even better is if you had a hay or uh, a hay crop that's been uh, three to four years in hay, now you've got a perennial crop out there, you're going to have the microbes. Wherever you have a live root, you have a 1,000 to 2,000 times more microbes. Each one of those microbes is a soluble bag of fertilizer. So it's very important that do as much as you can to get as many cover crops and have something living and growing on that soil year round, and that will restore your soil function. A key thing is the nitrogen dynamic we're losing with our soil compaction 40 to 60 percent of our nitrogen with leaching on a sandy soil you lose 20 to 40 and then volatilization can be you know five to fifty percent losses so when when you look at our soils at least here in ohio we had probably on average six percent organic matter we've lost at least 40 to 60%, sometimes more than that. It's not uncommon to have 2% organic matter, okay? Well, there's a 1,000 pounds of nitrogen for every 1% organic matter. We've lost 4,000 pounds of nitrogen out of our soil. So if you're adding a cover crop like cereal rye, you're gonna add like a 10th to a 10th and a half percent organic matter to that soil each year you have to add an additional 100 to 150 pounds of nitrogen now you don't have to put that all on as fertilizer that's expensive but you can grow it put in you know some clovers some legumes things like that and once you get to the compaction and you start to get your soil so that it's not losing so much nitrogen, you'll actually start to get ahead of the ball game and so that you don't have to uh, put that all on as fertilizer. And then if, if you have manure, manure just makes all the cover crops grow more. You just get twice the biomass whenever you put on manure. So manure is a natural one or if you're grazing. If you have livestock and you can graze these cover crops, now you got a way to pay off the cover crops and it just improves the soil that way. So So there's a lot of things going on that are all kind of helping each other, but you really can't cut a lot back on inputs until you get that soil fully functioning.
0: No-till can help you plant earlier, but probably not the same year you start the transition. When we come back, Jim will tell us why. Jim, how does the no-till practice help soil warm up in the spring?
1: When you first. Start out, your soil is cold and wet because of the compaction. When you're coming out of the winter, it takes 10 times more energy to warm up wet soils. And when you have compacted soils, a lot of times you have standing water and your soils is going to be cold and wet. And you also got some residue on the surface so the sun can't get down there. Well, once you get those cover crop roots and they break up that compacted layer, now you're going to allow some air to get into that soil and it's going to warm up. Now go out another year or two and all of a sudden now you're starting to get a little bit more residue as that residue breaks down what color does it turn it turns black and black absorbs the heat and then as you go out even a little bit further when you start to really get the long-term no-till and cover crops think about what happens in the middle of a compost pile where you have biological life, high microbial populations, and live roots, they give off heat and they're going to warm up your soil. So if you're cold and wet, I immediately know that you have a soil compaction problem and you're probably just getting started. As you transition, you should gradually be able to warm your soil and have less standing water and you'll know that you've reached a good point is when your soils are warm and moist that's a perfect place to plant corn, beans or or any other crop that we're going to go and that, that's when you'll start to see that your crops will really really thrive. So I really think it's kind of important that we talk about those things to understand that transition. We're bacteria dominated, those bacteria are only about 20 to 30% efficient at keeping carbon in the soil. Once we start getting the fungus in there, we're about, you know, somewhere around 40 to 55 percent, let's say, efficient at keeping carbon in the system. So we're trying to get that carbon back into the system so that we can heal the soil. And now this is a whole other topic, but it all goes with your carbon-nitrogen-phosphorus cycles. Every time you till the soil. You lose anywhere from a half inch to about an inch of water. So that a lot of times that's why farmers are tilling it is to dry that soil out. But we can do the same thing with a live crop. Now it takes a little longer, but on a daily basis, cereal rye can lose. You know, it it really varies on a lot of conditions, but. You know, average numbers would be maybe a quarter of an inch of water is transpiring in a day. So you can use the cereal rye to help naturally dry out your soils. A lot of farmers think that those soils are wet where they have the cover crop, but it's actually got more structural stability. We say that the soil is firm when it's wet and it's soft when it's dry you compare that to a conventional tilled soil and i'm going to use very technical terms here okay it's squishy when it's wet okay and it's like concrete or hard as a rock when it turns dry so i think in the future we really need to be looking at structural stability and how these cover crops can really help us maybe in these wet years i've got a challenge out and here's my challenge I told these guys at the uh, conservation tillage conference, I want you guys all to go out. We found out from Maryland where they've been using these cover crops that they can get on their soils five to 10 days earlier than what they used to when they were conventionally tilled. I said, I want you to go out and try it and try to see if you can't get a, a field planted. Now don't get stuck. But I said, I also want you to send me all the pictures of the neighbors that try to go out on their conventional fields and send me all the pictures of them getting stuck, and I'm going to put it on my website, okay? You know, that will very quickly, if that happens, farmers are going to say, and how can you do that? And that's going to get a lot of interest. I'm calling it the cover crop challenge right now. It's like the ice bucket challenge, but that's my challenge to farmers. See how many of your neighbors you can get stuck because they're all watching each other. And as soon as one guy goes out and starts planting, you can bet you the other ones are looking over the fence to look once. whether well, there are any fence rows anymore, but they're looking to see what's going on. And it doesn't take too long before everybody's kind of following everybody else talking about this carbon nitrogen phosphorus cycle this is kind of an interesting thing I like to ask my farmers I said well you guys are, are corn farmers I said you should know these facts and figures I said how many pounds of carbon do you need per day to get 200 bushel corn well most of them don't know and it's a right around let's say a uh, hundred pounds and then I'll ask them I said well where does that carbon dioxide come from? Well, most of them will say the air, the atmosphere, but if you were to get 100 pounds of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, do you realize that you would need an area, 32 cubic acres of air to get 100 pounds of carbon dioxide? So that doesn't seem real reasonable. So then we talk a little bit about what do leaves take in? They take in carbon dioxide, they give off oxygen. Then we have a discussion on, okay, what do roots take in? Well, roots take in oxygen, and they give off carbon dioxide. So in the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide level is about 400 to 410. In the soil, the carbon dioxide level is 3,000 to 10,000 parts per million. And if you have good soil structure at night with good capillary action, you can raise that to 20,000 to 30,000 parts per million. And if you look at the structure of a corn leaf, where are the stomata? The stomata are underneath the leaf. Now, here's another question you can ask farmers. This is brand new information, okay? We just learned this, uh, just came out in a research article. And let's say you have a 10-hour day. What percentage of the time or how many hours in that day do we have full-blown photosynthesis? Well, the answer is only about 10 to 20% of the time. All that 20,000 to 30,000 uh, parts per million carbon dioxide, most of that is used up on a conventional soil within about 1 hour. 1 to 2 hours it's all gone. So, carbon is one of the most limiting elements that we have for corn production. We have the potential to get 1,100 bushel per acre. We're only producing, you know, guys are producing anywhere from 150 to, let's say, 300, okay, is pretty much standard. Now, there's one other thing you got to think about. When you do tillage in the fall, what happens? You're releasing all this carbon dioxide within the first 10 minutes. goes high up in the atmosphere, and where does that carbon dioxide go? Well, at least here in Ohio, the trade winds take it, and where is it deposited? In the ocean. The ocean's the biggest sink. You're also, when you do that tillage, you're releasing what? Soluble nitrogen, soluble phosphorus. What happens to soluble nitrogen, soluble phosphorus? It flows with the water, goes to Lake Erie, goes over the St. Lawrence. Most of that's going to end up either in our surface water or out in the ocean. So we have this broken carbon-nitrogen-phosphorus cycle. The way you restore it is you do the four principles that NRCS, I used to work for NRCS, has talked about. And that's, number one, minimize your soil disturbance. Number two, maximize your, your surface cover. Number three, maximize your live roots. And four, maximize your biodiversity. If you do those four things, you will improve soil health, but you'll also uh, have a much more uh, sustainable farm, and you're also going to be more profitable because you're going to use a lot less uh, inputs over time.
0: Understanding the dynamics of how nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium work together is beneficial in a no-till system. We'll talk about that after this. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. How do they relate to each other?
1: At least the way I was taught in school, you know, we always said that they reacted a lot differently. But here's something that's interesting, okay? We know that under saturated soil conditions, what happens to nitrogen? We can lose 40 to 60% of it, or it can be leached away, okay? So when we have saturated soil conditions, we lose nitrogen. What happens when we have saturated soil conditions with phosphorus? And I've been really studying this phosphorus issue in Lake Erie. If you've lost all the organic matter, about 50 to 70% of our phosphorus is tied up organically. Well, if it's not tied up organically, then you have to tie it up inorganically by aluminum, iron, calcium, and magnesium. And we found out that iron is our bad boy, okay? We have about a 1.43% iron content here in Ohio in our lake bed soils. And so what happens is under saturated soil conditions, Iron goes from the ferric to the ferrous, so that's the 3-plus state, the ferric, to the 2-plus state, and when it does that, it releases soluble reactive phosphorus that's going to flow with the water. Now, that's only half the bad news. What's the other bad news? When it starts to dry out just a little bit, That iron wants to get that phosphorus back, so it steals it from calcium, magnesium, or anything with a lower valence, and it'll go from the ferrous back to the ferric. So it's interesting, when we did some research here in Ohio, 2015 was a very wet year. Nitrogen concentration started off high, and then over the season, it just dropped because of denitrification. What happened on phosphorus? concentration stayed the same uh, no matter about how much it rained I mean we had a very very wet year well what was happening ferric to ferrous, it was being lost and then as soon as it started to dry out a little bit it would steal it from calcium magnesium or wherever And then the next time it would rain, go back from ferrous back to ferric, and then when it rained, it would release it again. So we have a lot of phosphorus in our soil, probably close to 3,500 pounds. It's a constant source of phosphorus, okay? So the weather and our management practices, we're doing vertical tillage up here. We're creating a hard pan that's about 2 inches to 4 inches deep. It's a new hard pan. And now we're getting a lot of saturated soil conditions, and that's causing both nitrogen and phosphorus to be lost. Hmm, I wonder if it has anything to do with potassium. Could it be? Well, one of our professors, Dr. Uh, Steve Coleman, was a little puzzled last year at our Conservation Tillage Conference. He said, you know, we've been doing these potassium studies the last three years, and we take a potassium soil test, And he said, you know, we had whatever level it was, and then we added potassium fertilizer. Well, you would expect the numbers to go up. He says, that's not what happened. They went down. He says, we can't explain it. And I was sitting in the back room. I thought, well, I better go up and talk to him. I said, hey, uh, did you apply that in the fall? Yes. Did you use a vertical tillage to uh, incorporate that? Yes. Have we had three wet years? Well, Jim, you know that we've had three wet years. Guess what? It's called potassium induction. Under saturated soil conditions, the, the iron in the clay particles opens up, and potassium is such a small ion, it gets caught in that clay complex. It's there yet, but it's, it's uh, held very, very tightly. And so I've been looking at soil tests. 2012 was a drought year, and uh, the potassium levels were like, let's say, 250 to 275. Three years later, in a very wet year, they took another soil test. What were the potassium levels? They were down to 100 to like 125 in the exact same fields that were just three years before. There's no way that we would've used that much potassium in that short period of time. The only way you're gonna make that potassium available is is microbially, and you've gotta aerate your soils. And unfortunately, a lot of our farming practices, especially with the vertical tillage, are causing us a lot of problems with uh, some of these environmental conditions and costing farmers money on their fertilizer. They're just not getting the efficiency on both nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium.
0: Jim Horman, thanks for joining me on this podcast, and thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody
1: Henke.